morning, everyone. Uh, let's continue in a posture of prayer as we prepare to open the word. Father, as we prepare to read and uh, digest your word this morning, we confess that your word is necessary because you and your word uh, outline and describe your character and your nature. And Lord, we need that because our proneness is to uh, construct or conjure up a God to our liking, a God in our own image. But Lord, you and your word are a God who has contours and who has edges. And I pray, Lord, now that as we open this first section of Exodus 20, uh, that you would show yourself uh, to us and that we would walk away today feeling blessed, feeling encouraged by what we see of you in this text. So we pray your help now, Lord, uh, both for uh, myself as I preach and for every listener here. In the name of Jesus, amen. The church is made up of believers in Jesus Christ who live under the new covenant. And yet here this morning, we are about to embark on 11 weeks worth of the Ten Commandments. And so the question is, why spend 11 weeks in the Old Testament if we are New Testament Christians? Uh, None of us are part of the nation of ancient Israel who live under the law of Moses. Why spend 11 weeks immersed in the law of Moses? Well, interestingly enough, we turn to the New Testament for answers to those questions. There are a number of places in the New Testament where the ongoing value of the Old Testament comes to light. Two of those places are in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So in Romans 15.4, Paul refers to the Old Testament writings when he says, Whatever was written in former days, there's a reference to the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written, why? For our instruction. So Exodus and Deuteronomy, where the Ten Commandments are found, were written for our instruction, Christian believers. And so was Samuel, and so was Ruth and Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah, and the rest of the Old Testament. We may not be under the law of Moses any longer, but as Albert Moeller has put it, that doesn't mean that we are no longer taught by the law. It was written for our instruction. In another place, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul asserts there that all... Scripture, including the 20th chapter of Exodus that we are going to spend 11 weeks in, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, he says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped 
for every good work. So friends, there is definite value in spending these weeks in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments. As we devote these Sundays to the Ten Commandments, God will be instructing us and teaching us and correcting us and training us and equipping us. Now, as concerns the Ten Commandments themselves, the New Testament makes it plain that for Christians, they remain as what Tom Schreiner calls moral norms. Moral norms. Yes, there are some details in the Ten Commandments that no longer apply to New Covenant believers, and we will try to point those out as clearly as we can over these weeks. But for the most part, for the most part, the principles of the Ten Commandments remain normative for New Covenant believers because they are the heartfelt expressions of God's character, and each and every one of us is made in the image of the God who spoke them. And it's certainly worth pointing out how many times the Ten Commandments get repeated and get discussed in the New Testament. There are a host of passages, too many to name right now, a host of passages across the four Gospels and the Book of Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and First and Second Timothy and other places in the New Testament where both Jesus and the apostles repeat the Ten Commandments and they assume that they still apply under the New Covenant for the most part. So for all reasons, it's good for us to spend these weeks in Exodus 20 looking carefully together at the Ten Commandments. So, are you ready? Let's get started. The Ten Commandments are essentially apodictic law. Okay, and everybody falls asleep when I say that. Uh, Apodictic is just a $75 word that simply means absolute prohibition. So ten times... In the Ten Commandments, we have an absolute prohibition. You shall not. Apodictic. But the Ten Commandments are law, right? We might say that they are foundational law in the Old Covenant. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you think of law in the biblical sense of law, What sorts of thoughts filter into your mind? Do you think of words like burden or heavy yoke when you think of God's law? What's instructive for us, I think, is to look briefly at three or four passages in the Old Testament where God's law is described as anything but a burden or a heavy yoke. Rather, God's law, and we need to understand this, is good, holy, and it is a cause for rejoicing. God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.1, listen to what he said, 
Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I am teaching you. So, in other words, listen to the laws that I am teaching you. And, he says, do them that you may live. Notice there that God's statutes and rules, his laws, are about life. For human beings. They are not about a sort of dark drudgery and cramping the style of human beings. They are about life. And we also have Deuteronomy 5.29 where God says to his people, he says about his people actually, he says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, keep all my law, That what? That it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Notice there that God says to keep his law is to flourish as a human being made in his image, to have things go well in life, to go with the grain of the universe instead of against the grain of the universe. So God's law is a good thing. It is a beneficial thing. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Again, the law of God was given as a gift to the people of God, to promote human flourishing for our good always. Is it any wonder then that the psalmist in Psalm 19 could go so far as to declare that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul? Is it any wonder that he could say that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing, The heart, rejoicing the heart. And that the law of God is more to be desired, he says, than gold, sweeter than honey. Friends, it's never a good idea for us to try to pit law against grace. Or to try to separate law altogether from grace. You hear that sort of thing so often. Law, people say, is the opposite of grace. Rather, we have to see that, biblically speaking, the law was a good and a delightful thing given in grace by a great God. When Israel received the law from God, they were receiving grace from God. Is it not gracious of God to reveal to his people what he requires of them so that they might flourish? Is that not gracious? And that's what law is in the biblical sense. It is a gracious gift from God. It is his gracious revelation to his people of what he requires of them so that they might flourish. As Daniel Block has put it, 
the revelation of the law was a supreme act of grace. And in another place, Bloch says, the law was a gracious gift for Israel. And so in these 11 weeks that we will spend on the Ten Commandments, on these foundational laws for the people of God, let's keep that thought on the surface, that these laws, in their original context, were graces given to a people freshly redeemed out of Egypt. These Ten Commandments are the manual, if we want to put it that way, the manual that was given in grace that taught Israel how to flourish under the God who had just saved them by grace out of Egypt. Now, having said all that we've just said about the law as a grace from God, it's also important to say this, that the law itself was never meant to save anybody who broke it. I want to say that again because it's very important. The law itself was never meant to save anyone who broke it. Roy Gain, who's a biblical scholar, he has a helpful illustration here. So say the Surgeon General issues a warning against smoking. I ignore that warning and I smoke six packs a day which I don't, by the way, but this is just an illustration. I smoke six packs a day, and I get lung cancer. At that point, here's the question. Does that earlier written warning from the Surgeon General provide me with a cure for my cancer? Do I go to the written warning for the healing of my lung cancer? Of course I don't. And it's the same with God's law. As Gaines says, God's law is the beneficial guide regarding cause and effect, not a remedy for violation of it. God's law is the beneficial guide regarding cause and effect, not a remedy for violation of it. Listen, friends, we need to get this straight. The only one who can help and who can save lawbreakers was the God who gave the laws in the first place. The only way we are saved as breakers of God's law is not by going back to the law for increased law-keeping, but by going to Christ who became a curse for us on the cross to set us free from our enslavement to law-breaking. Are you with me? I want to give you two more quotes from Roy Gain here. Listen to what he says. He says, Law-keeping is not, cannot be, and never was intended to be a means of salvation or a basis of salvation from consequences of failure to keep it. He says further, laws generally do not offer mercy to those who are accountable for keeping them because mercy 
is over and above the law. Or as Ross Blackburn has put it, I like this, the law was never meant to be Israel's source of hope. The Lord was. The law was never meant to be Israel's source of hope. The the Lord was. Let me get that straight. So, friends, the upshot is that we have to keep God's law in balanced perspective as we enter into the Ten Commandments. On one hand, it is a grace. It is delightful. The law is a gift given to help human beings flourish. But on the other hand, the law itself was never meant to save anybody from law-breaking. We must never put our hope in law and in law-keeping. Instead, our hope must be in God himself. Now, in this sermon series, you won't hear me use the phrase Ten Commandments very often. Because the fact is that the Bible itself never uses that terminology of Ten Commandments. In our Bibles, there are only three potential places where you might see the translation in an English text, Ten Commandments. And those places are Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 4.13, and Deuteronomy 10.4. But listen, in all three of those texts in the original Hebrew, what we have is ten words, not ten commandments. It's a different Hebrew word for commandments. We have ten words. So for the reason that the Bible itself doesn't use the terminology ten commandments, You will hear me use ten words far more often in this sermon series. Why is this important? It's important because the phrase ten words, which is what we find in the Bible, is much more suggestive of relational communication. Words spoken by God to his people much more relational than is Ten Commandments, which suggests a sort of less-than-personal legislation that is dictated from God to his people. Let's not forget that the context in which the Ten Words are given is a context of relationship between two parties, a relationship between God and his Hebrew people. God had scooped his son out of Egypt. God called his people his son in Exodus 4.23. He had scooped his son out of Egypt. And now at Mount Sinai, God was communicating to his son the ten words in relationship with his son so that his son might flourish. I love how Dan Block describes the ten words. He says that the ten words, we can think of them this way, they are ten principles of covenant relationship. That's a good way to think of the ten words. They are ten principles of covenant relationship. Now I promise that eventually this morning we'll get to our preaching text. 
Our preaching text, again, is the two-verse prologue to the ten words that is given at the beginning of Exodus 20. But before we get to that text, right now what we're doing is we're giving basic consideration to the nature of the ten words. So far, just to review, we've tried to argue that the ten words are still relevant for New Covenant Christians. We've also talked about the nature of biblical law, that the law, including the ten words, was a grace given to God's people, but was never meant to save anyone. And then we've also touched on why it's important to think of the ten words as words instead of commandments. The final thing we want to do before we venture to our preaching text, is to point out four ways in which the ten words stand out in the Bible. Four clues that tell us that the ten words are especially unique and especially significant within the revelation that God has given to us. So in first place, the ten words are special And they are highly significant because they alone, out of all the divine revelation that was given at Mount Sinai, they alone were spoken directly by God to the people. In the book of Exodus, the normal pattern prior to Exodus 20, the normal pattern after Exodus 20 also, was that God would speak to Moses, right? And then Moses would relay to the people what God had said to him. But with the ten words, God goes ahead and he speaks directly to the people without using Moses as mediator. And the effect of God's direct speech to the people, according to Exodus 20, 19, was some notable terror. In the people. So again, this makes the ten words significant. With the ten words, God breaks the established pattern and he speaks directly to the people instead of relaying things through Moses. And incidentally, this puts the the revelation of the ten words in the same unique, momentous category as Jesus' baptism. Another occasion when people heard God's voice speaking directly. And also the transfiguration, where again, people heard God speaking directly. And Paul's conversion, where people again heard God speak directly. Well, the second reason why we should see the ten words as very unique and preeminently uh, significant in God's revelation to us is that there was a special, we need to note this, a special and particularly imposing presence of God that manifested when he spoke the ten words. According to Exodus 19 and 20, and also Deuteronomy 4 and 5, when God spoke these ten words, there was thunder and lightning, and there was smoke and fire. There was thick cloud and darkness, and there was a mysterious, audible trumpet sound. 
and Mount Sinai quaked and it trembled. So it's like God ramped up the glory of his magnificent presence for the revelation of the ten words. And this also makes them particularly significant and unique in God's revelation. In third place, the ten words are to be taken as particularly important and special because they alone are said to be written down on stone tablets with the finger of God as it says in Exodus 31:18. Now, however we interpret that phrase, it is unique in the Bible. Revelation from God that happens outside of the ten words is not described as written with the finger of God. But the ten words are described that way. So this makes them unique, and it suggests that they are premier in their significance. Last, in fourth place, the ten words are to be understood as special and uniquely significant because the ten words alone were preserved in duplicate on two tablets of stone that were then placed in the Ark of the Covenant to have a home in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. Because the ten words were primary covenant words, they had the privilege of being stored in Israel's holiest place, unlike any other revealed words. And it's worth pointing out, friends, that in our Bibles, it's only the ten words in the Law of Moses, it's only the ten words in the Law of Moses that get an encore, to use the terminology of Victor Hamilton. Hamilton points out, that the ten words of Exodus 20 is the one collection, he says, the one collection of laws that is repeated in the same sequence over in Deuteronomy 5. Yes, there are repetitions of individual laws from Old Testament book to Old Testament book, but as Hamilton says, the only legal corpus or the only legal collection to have an encore is the ten words. We find the ten words in both Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. So this signifies, again, their unique importance. So now hopefully we can see, we can begin to see, how important the ten words are and why it's appropriate for us to spend these weeks uh, meditating through them together. The ten words have been understood as the very constitution of ancient Israel. The ten words have been understood as the very heart of the entire Torah, of the entire law of God. And our Jewish friends have long pointed out that in the Exodus version of the ten words, we have 613 Hebrew letters total. And the total number of laws in the entire Torah is, you guessed it, 613. So then it would appear that all the various laws of the Torah, of the law of God, are embodied. They are distilled in the ten words. It is wise for us to explore the ten, ten words together in these weeks. 
Well, with all of that as a rather lengthy introduction to the ten words, uh, what we want to do now, as promised, is venture to Exodus 20, to the first two verses of that chapter that were read for us earlier. We want to take time now to read them again. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how the ten words kicks off, right here. Immediately after these two verses, we get the first word of the ten words, and we won't get to that one until next week. But in verses 1 and 2, we have so much here that is highly important as we seek a proper understanding of the ten words and what's going on here. The first thing to notice here is what we've already mentioned, which is that beginning at verse 1, going all the way down through verse uh, 17, what we have is God directly addressing the people, right? Notice how verse 1 begins. Who spoke all these words? God did. And God spoke all these words, saying... And so this is direct address from Almighty God. But another thing that really sticks out to us in these two verses, and I want you to listen, another thing that really sticks out to us in these two verses, as we read them in their original Hebrew, doesn't come out in English, but it's there in the original text, the thing we notice is that the words your and you are both in the singular Instead of in the plural. So God says, I am the Lord, your, singular, God, who brought you, singular, out of the land of Egypt. In other words, friends, God's address here is to the individual, the individual Israelite, even though clearly he's addressing the whole people of Israel. Now, this is noteworthy as we read these verses in Hebrew, and the singular continues in eight out of the ten words. Very important. The ten words are personalized to the individual. God is directly addressing me, and he's directly addressing you, even as he addresses all of us together. The Jewish philosopher Philo, who lived at the time when Jesus was on earth, Philo looked at this singular, personalized language of the ten words, and he said that the personalized language emphasized three things. First of all, it emphasized the value of every single human being, every individual. God chose to personally address every person individually. Second, Philo said that the personalized language of the ten words also emphasized the personal responsibility to God of each person. And third, he said it also emphasized the personal responsibility of each individual to his or her neighbor. The language here is in the singular, even though God is addressing all the people. Very important. Another thing to camp on here for a minute is the import of that phrase, I am the Lord your God. There's so much here. First of all, 
At this moment, when the ten words were being revealed, Israel had just very recently been under the tyrannical lordship of Pharaoh. But now they'd been set free, amen? And the one who set them free was now asserting his lordship over them. I am the Lord, your God. Israel was now in a brand new day. They were under brand new ownership. I am the Lord, your God. Secondly, and this is amazing, way back in Exodus 6. So before the exodus out of Egypt ever happened, Exodus 6, God promised that he would indeed lead his people out of Egypt. And as he made that promise, God had used the following language. I am the Lord, Exodus 6.2. And Exodus 6.6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And Exodus 6.7, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So that now after the exodus out of Egypt... Here in Exodus 20, verse 2, when God begins to address the people post-redemption, and he says to them, I am the Lord your God. Well, this was a blessed and powerful reminder of the earlier promise in Exodus 6, and how God's promise, his mighty promise of redeeming them out of Egypt, had now come true. As soon as he said that, they would remember, yes, he promised it, And now it's come true. We are set free. We are liberated from the shackles of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then he continues. I want you to notice carefully. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now in these latter words of verse 2, we have what I would call majorly important interpretive words for the Ten Commandments. Most postings of the Ten Commandments in schools and in courthouses, especially in the States, we won't see that around Quebec much, but most postings of the Ten Commandments in schools and courthouses leave out verses 1 and 2 which is a real shame, I think, because verses 1 and 2 give us absolutely crucial interpretive clues that are essential for a proper understanding of the Ten Commandments. What we need to notice, friends, in verse 2 is that God outlines the redemption, right? The liberation, the salvation that he himself had just executed all by himself on behalf of his people. You see this, the words, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, describe the salvation that God had just wrought for his people who had been powerless to do it for themselves. Yes? So that, this is very important, God saving the people out of Egypt came before He gave them the ten words. The ten words are addressed, we need to understand, to an already saved 
already redeemed people. The gift of God to the people, which was liberation out of Egypt, happened prior to their hearing the demands of the ten words. Very important. This means that the ten words and keeping the ten words, listen, were not the way to earn redemption because redemption had already happened. And here again, we're touching on the relationship between law and grace. To paraphrase paraphrase something Chris Wright has said, he said, law, ten words, are the response to grace, not the means of earning it. Law is the response to grace, not the means of earning it. Of earning it. As Graham Goldsworthy puts it, I'll go through this slow, the law is given to those who have already experienced the grace of God and salvation, and it is not the basis upon which they will be saved. The task of obedience is given because the relationship of sonship has already been established as an undeserved gift. What we need to grasp here, friends, is that gospel precedes law. Grace comes before law. That's the pattern in Exodus 20, verse 2 and following, and it's also the pattern in so many other places in our scriptures. Grace before law. Gospel before commands. Listen to the order of things one chapter earlier in Exodus 19, verses 4 and 5. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did (laughs) to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. That verse is all about the redemption, the grace, the salvation that God had wrought for the people. And then and only then do we get verse 5. Now therefore, because of the redemption that I have wrought for you, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Friends, grace precedes the call to keep commandments. Grace has priority over law. And this same pattern of grace before law, we need to see this, this same pattern, because we're wired in a different way. We're wired for law, right? Keeping law, that's how I'm going to get right with God. We're wired that way. We need to see that this pattern is all over the place in Scripture. Grace before law. Deuteronomy 4, verses 37 through 40 There there are three whole verses here in this passage that are devoted to God's power in saving Israel, God's universal lordship. Before we get verse 40, which says, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. So in that passage as well, the grace of God for Israel comes prior to Israel being told to obey commandments. In the New Testament, 
the same pattern holds. Have you ever noticed, as just two examples, that the entire book of Ephesians, the entire letter to the Ephesians is structured as grace first followed by laws and commands? It's a clear distinction. In in Ephesians, we have three whole chapters, chapters 1 through 3, describing the grace of God in Christ on our behalf and what God has done, before we ever get to chapter 4 through 6, which is where the commands come. Grace first, and then the commands. Or consider Colossians 1, 1 through 2, 5. A big section there, and there's lots in that section about Christ's delivering power, uh, Christ's creative power. Before we ever get to Colossians 2, 6, which is where the very first imperative command in the letter is found. The priority of grace. Grace precedes law. There's a dangerous assumption out there. I've heard it so often in my 49 years, and you probably have too. The assumption is, well, if I live a good life, that is... If I try to follow rules, and I don't break rules, I treat people well, my rule-keeping and being a quote-unquote good person will make God smile on me in the end and accept me into his heaven. No. A thousand times, no. Grace must come first in your life. You must be saved by God. You must have God redeem you in Christ. You must have Him set you free from your enslavement to law-breaking. This has to happen before any of your law-keeping will make any difference whatsoever. Grace first, then law. The ten words begin, significantly they begin, and I hope we've seen this. They begin with that powerful statement of grace. God brought the people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and now, as a thanks for that salvation already received, the people were to keep the ten words. The ten words were not the means of salvation, They were the consequence of salvation. Well, as we wrap this up today, I want to give you a little heads up about what's coming in the next ten Sundays. I want to just briefly note here that the ten words have a basic structure about them. The first four of the ten words have to do with our relationship with God. That is... The first four have to do with what we could call the vertical relationship, our relationship with God, while the final six of the ten words have to do with our relationship with our neighbor, what we could call the horizontal relationship, so that the ten words taken together are then about loving God, first four, and loving neighbor, Latter six. And Jesus said, our Lord said, did he not, that loving God 
and loving neighbor were the two commandments on which all the law and the prophets depend. Who is the only one, the only human being who has fulfilled loving God and loving neighbor fully, perfectly, and completely? It's Jesus Christ. The only person who has perfectly fulfilled the ten words is Jesus Christ. None of us have. As Daryl Johnson once said, and I love this, in Jesus what happened is that the law-giving God who had spoken in smoke and fire and darkness and earthquake from the top of Mount Sinai, he came down from the mountain to dwell in flesh amongst us. But then what happened is that Jesus climbed up another mountain, Calvary to be precise, there to take the punishment for our law-breaking. What is the ultimate way in which Jesus perfectly fulfills the ten words? That is, how exactly did Jesus show that he loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind? And how exactly did Jesus show that he loved his neighbor as himself? As Edmund Clowney explains, Jesus' love for the Father was so great that he was willing to be accursed by the Father, in order order to carry out His Father's plan of salvation for those the Father had given Him. And, Clowney says, Jesus' love for neighbor was so great that He gave up His life for those neighbors who hated Him. You see, friends, like Israel before us, Israel who were enslaved to Pharaoh before God liberated them. The reality is that you and I are born enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. We are all lawbreakers without power to free ourselves from our enslavement. But Jesus comes along and it's by his cross that he liberates us and we are forgiven. So that now, if we are redeemed believers, are you a redeemed believer today? If you're a redeemed believer, if God has redeemed you and brought you out of that slavery, God says to us in our lives, this morning he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of slavery to sin, death, and the devil by the life, death, and resurrection of my Son. I have imputed my Son's righteousness to you, and I have breathed my Spirit upon you as a new creation. Therefore, obey me. Keep my commandments. If you're a person this morning who's sitting here conscious of your failings, conscious of your failings before Almighty God in trying to keep His law, if you have a sense of desperation in you, 
that you will quite simply never measure up to God's holy and righteous standards, then I urge you this morning to fly to Jesus Christ. Cry out to Jesus Christ, who is the crucified and risen one, the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law and the only name by which you can be saved and receive Jesus Christ. He will forgive you and he will cover you with his perfect righteousness and he will enable you and empower you by his spirit to help you obey. Let's pray together. Father, you require us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you. But Lord, we confess that we have not loved you or loved our neighbor in this way. And so right now we repent and we ask you to forgive us. And as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from us. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve us. Thank you that as believers in the crucified and risen Jesus, our law-breaking has been covered by the blood that was shed at the cross. And we pray your help this week by the Holy Spirit to make us careful in all that we do, in every place that we go, and in every conversation that we have, Help us to be careful to to honor you and to give you the glory that you deserve. We pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may God, who has begun a good work in you, continue to work in you his perfect will, even as he promised, so that you may fulfill God's purpose with joy and have a sense of his presence with you always. Amen.